Cold Black and Infinite is 16 stories that represent the last five years of my life, my of my writing life, I should say. And there's a little bit of everything. It's got a lot of range, but uh, it's also a cohesive piece that has everything from zombies to cosmic horror to black-eyed kids to there's even a long-form prose poem in it, if that's your jam. Uh, again, a lot of little, you know, a lot of elements of various types of horror, and there's something there for everybody, I think. Before talking about um, this collection of stories or uh, individual stories in it, I want to address um, crossovers and like um, um, connectivity and stuff because it seems like beyond there being a connectivity between some of the stories, there's also connectivity or crossing over into some of your other books. So mm-hmm. um, I guess my question is, is this something that just comes naturally to you or you write in a way where a lot of the stuff takes place in the same universe and naturally kind of bumps into each other or how, yeah. What's the, what's the, what's the cause of the, of the, uh, of the crossovers? <laughs> it's, you know, yeah, it does come naturally, but at the same time, you know, I mean, I, I am making a conscious effort to, you know, introduce elements into some of my stories that have more of a direct connection to some of my novels and, and vice versa. Uh, I like to think of it as playing in the same sandbox. Um you know, it, it's it's easier for me to work in a world that I've already established and the rules and everything than to you know put the time and energy into creating something entirely new and separate. Um, so yeah, I, I guess that it yeah it does come naturally. It but it's my natural inclination to do that. But I'm also you know, making an effort to build out this expanded Southline mythos that I call it, uh, and mm-hmm. try to place as many works of fiction in that as I can. Uh, but sometimes, you know, sometimes it's not the case. Sometimes they're standalone and, you know, that's just how the story forms. Yeah. And in, in your, um, uh, your notes at the end of the book about some of the stories, I almost got the impression for some of them that um, either I'm trying to think of the best way to say this. There was almost like um, in thinking about the other stories, something came up where you're like, Oh, I'm going to write that. Or you had more to say, or um, that kind of thing where your mind was just naturally fleshing out an idea and in continuation of something else. Is that accurate? Or am I just reading into that? Uh, sometimes, you know, that's not always the case. I mean, like using holes in the fabric as an example, um, one of the stories in the collection, I wrote that to kind of link my novella, the final reconciliation more firmly to devil's Creek. Uh, so it's the, you know, in, in both books, there's reference to a character's mother not being, you know, of sound mind, uh, psychologically damaged. So, 
in trying to come up with a way to more, you know, effectively link those two stories, uh, she became my focal point. Like I wanted to explore how and why, you know, she's the way she is and rep and represented in those. And in, in turn, you know, flesh out an entirely new character. All right um, on. That answer your question. Uh, <laughs> I tend to ramble. <laughs> no, it's cool. So one of the thoughts I had was that, you know, um, a lot of these stories are previously published, um, but there does seem to be kind of um, like a fit where they all kind of work nicely together. And then the thing that I actually didn't notice until I was done reading and I was looking over the table of contents was the title kind of means something in sections too. Is that kind of accurate? So there's, uh, or, or the table of contents implied, I guess, that there's a section that's cold, a section that's black, and a section that's infinite. Is that accurate? Uh, like, I tried to group the stories that, you know, kind of fit thematically somewhat. Like, the, you know, the first group of stories, you know, several of them had to take place on holidays in the colder months, so hence cold. Um, the black section... You could interpret that several ways. That could be black comedy because there is some black comedy in there. It's also just pitch black, you know, a lot of dark stuff in that section. And then the infinite is more cosmic horror, you know, more philosophical, existential, you know, and in some ways nihilistic uh, looks at the world. Um, but also, aside from that, like I... I approach the collection as as like a a, a greatest hits sort of thing. Like I, I'm I'm really into music. Uh, Nine Inch Nails is a huge influence, hence the title, uh, which is actually a a line from a Nine Inch Nails song. Each each like album that Nine Inch Nails would come out with is kind of considered in the fan base as an era. There's a particular design. There's a look to it. Um, there's a style uh, that kind of perpetuates over a span of time. And looking at all the stories that I had completed in this five, you know, five-year period was kind of like an end of an era to me. Um, you know, it was mostly most of them were written in my 30s. You know, I, I just turned 40 this year, so a lot of reflection introspection and i wanted to kind of mark mark this this period of my life with uh you know a a grouping of what i consider some of my best work um and it's also like an evolution of my writing and storytelling from the last collection i did which came out in 2017 um, so keeping in, you know, in my, that in mind and, uh, you know, it's also, you could also look at it as, you know, the, as the night falls, you know, you go from the cold of the evening to the, you know, full dark to the infinite expanse of the stars above. That's probably ham fisted, but we can roll with that. There's no, so many like different it. ways to interpret it. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Cool. That totally makes sense. And, um, uh, I hadn't really, it, it was weird because, um, so, you, you know, 
thank you for the uh, advanced, you know, ebook and everything like that. I just dove right sure. into the, and I do this so often was I dive right into reading something that I don't kind of pay attention to the wrappings a lot. So, um, and I often mm-hmm. even fail to acknowledge, you know, like the cover and stuff. Like I really like the cover of this book and the type and the type and everything is really cool. But I just, I usually just blow past that and I get right into reading and I don't pay attention to the other stuff until later. So when I noticed that there was kind of um, sections almost, I was like, oh, there's probably something to that. I better ask him about that. <laughs> um so yeah that's my own failing as an enthusiastic reader is sometimes i kind of miss bigger points no no that's a great question i'm glad you asked it uh you know that's something i've noticed with the early reviews is everybody's kind of got their interpretation of that and that's a lot of fun to see right on um one thing that i i think i in in planning this back and forth emailing with you um, I think I said something like, you know, like your book is fucking me up or something like that. So this is another thing that I typically yeah. fail to do because I get deeper into the, like thinking about individual stuff that I, I kind of fail to acknowledge kind of grander um, effects and stuff. But like you mentioned it, there's some really dark stuff in here. There's some pretty disturbing stuff in here. Mm-hmm. Um, but like not in a way where someone might like in a positive way in a he's got the best dark stuff. He's got the best disturbing stuff kind of way, not in a in a way that detracts from, from the book. So I just want to acknowledge up front, like very effective, scary stuff, disturbing stuff, um, emotionally impactive stuff Thank in there you. as well. So, and obviously I'll probably talk about some specific ones when we talk about stories, but um, yeah, I just want to acknowledge up front, like this book is a ride and I, I wasn't, I don't know if I was like really ready for the ride that it was. <laughs> um, I, I get that a lot. <laughs> um but but i like i was listening to you talk to uh this is horror uh when you were you know talking about devil's creek and um it seems like you're not really shy about writing writing stuff really really going anywhere because like you talked a lot about um things that were personal to you and you talked a lot about your history of religion and stuff and so it it seems like Mm -hmm. whatever like you're not it'll all go out on the page like there's not really something that you're not like a place you're not willing to go is that kind of accurate uh i mean there are certain things that i kind of you know cringe or shy away from as a rule but like like the you know you mentioned devil's creek there's a lot there's you know implications of rape there's uh, child abuse um pedophilia things of that nature and like I can write about them and because that is an unfortunate thing that happens in the world and it's fucked up, but you can't just close your eyes and pretend it doesn't exist. You have to face it. And my goal is to approach those topics, but in a tasteful manner that isn't exploitive um, you know, I'm not just throwing it in there for gore's sake. Um, I had this conversation with a, with a friend not too long ago. Like I don't consider myself an extreme writer, uh, by any stretch. You know, that's not my jam. It, it's, I don't like really care for reading it either, but I also come from a school of thought where, you know, if this is going to come up in the story and it has a reason to be there, 
there is, you know, if it's, it tracks with a certain kind of character that they, they would do this, you know, I would try to structure the plot in a way that I wouldn't have to describe it as it's happening. Uh, but I like, that's, I guess if, if anything, and you know, I, people could say this is a good thing. Some people would say this is a bad thing, but I will go right up to that moment and then cut away. Um, unless it's, you know, unless it's necessary for the story, but even then I'm not going to like it. Um, and I'm going to try to be as careful with it and as, you know, because in, in certain scenes like that, you know, it's impossible not to think of how it's going to be read and interpreted. Uh, so that, you know, that's probably the only time I write with, you know, being conscious of how others are going to perceive it. Uh, so I try to I try to handle stuff like that with tact and respect uh, for, you know, how heavy the the content is yeah and that so, um oh, know, sorry. I, I i it's okay uh you know i i've written before about this uh you know i don't look away um i think it's the reader will know when i'm looking away it's disingenuous um so i try to you know but just because i'm 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 not going to look away and i'm looking i'm writing it i'm writing about this stuff i'm going to treat it you know, as carefully as I can. Like, I'm not just going to throw shit to the wall and, you know, man, look at this fucked up thing that happened, huh? Deal with it. I'm not going to do that. Like, and there's going to be some literary reason for it to be there. And if I can't provide that reason, then it's going to get cut. Yeah. Um, so the obvious example from this book would be the gods of our fathers, um, where mm-hmm. there is a, there is an instance of assault that happens in the story. And, you know, I, I think my impression of the story is exactly what you said, as far as how you handle those situations. Um, yeah. Like tactful, there's a reason for it. Um, you know, it's handled respectfully, all those types. It's not gratuitous. It's not, you know, weird. Um, and as a reader, yeah, I, I think that there that's one of the types of situations that it's it's harder to read, but when the story um has a like a bigger message and um it has an empowerment to it or or whatever, like um or, or again, like if it's just you know, a part of the story that's justified to be part of a good story, then obviously like it's it's beneficial as a reader to kind of get the experience of the story. Um, and yeah, I, I feel like that story, you handled it the way that you said you do. Um, that was going to, and it's always hard for me to kind of talk about these topics because I feel like there was an era or there was a time where like assault was like a shorthand to getting a story started or like, a like a crutch mm-hmm. for writers to just kind of like have a reason for bad things to happen. Um, and so the fact that I feel like that's being moved away from and people are being more thoughtful about what it actually means is, is good. And I think that your, your story, you know, gods of our fathers is the type of story I think that, you know, should exist if that's going to be a part of it. Thank you. 
Yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, and uh, that one, um, oh, I'm trying to remember because outside of like that particular element of it, I think it was just one of the more um, engrossing stories where I feel like I just kind of fell into like the world that was, was being built. And um, there was a, mm-hmm. a really nice, nice pet goat that was part of it. Uh, Oats, I think. Oats the goat. Yeah, Oats the goat. Uh, my <laughs> my agent, uh, she, she was sad about the goat. A lot of people <laughs> were sad about the goat. And I was sad about the goat because I don't, you know, I don't like to write about harm coming to animals. I can't watch that on in movies and whatnot, but the, you know, context of the story with, you know, this little girl turning to quite literally the gods of her, you know, her, her, her mom and her grandfather, like the, the old ways, so to speak, um, you know, more pagan in nature and more primal, you know, that's, that's something that was done back in the day. You know, you sacrificed something to show your devotion. And in some cases, especially with those older, you know, older religions, you know, it was a blood sacrifice. So, you know, I tried to, tried to maintain that. And then to a greater extent, just try to build out this underlying, this underlying, like, sense of paganism and you know older you know religions older than we know uh you know perpetuating throughout you know the south yeah you know, I, I grew up in the south uh you, know, you listen to my this is horror you know interview so uh i grew up in the south and you know i've unfortunately never been out of the country it's never been something that i could afford to do unfortunately but I'm obsessed with Stonehenge and, mm. you know, standing stones in general and that whole like druidic aspect of, you know, ancient culture. And that's something that has always intrigued me, even since I was a child and just how different it is compared to what I grew, you know, was raised in. So I want, I've wanted to take that elements of, you know, European lore and try to transfer that in my fiction to, you know, the places I grew up. So, you know, Gods of Our Fathers kind of, you know, encapsulates that a lot. I wrote that in the middle of writing Devil's Creek. So there's a lot of similar language that, you know, carries over Mm -hmm. a similar tone, I think. Nice. Yeah. And the story just kind of gave me a feeling of like, um, obviously it's like someone going through just horrible adversity and finding their power, um, in a way, uh, Mm -hmm. or at least that's kind of where I walked away from it with, um, with kind of like a, I definitely see that. Yeah. Like, uh, I don't know. Cause I was the tricky thing whenever I read, you know, stuff that has religion in it or spirituality in it. I was raised mm-hmm. non-religious. And so I'm, I'm, it's like, I'm looking at everything through a window. Like I can't touch it. I can't feel it. Cause I've never, you know, 
had that experience before. So it's, 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 it's at a remove yeah. for me. Um, but, uh, there, I definitely got a feeling of like, uh, um, if I could say, don't just accept things like find what's the right thing for you kind of a feel to it as well. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, like this, it's about not being able to fit into the world that you're given. You know, it's this little girl who was raised a certain way and now her, the people she loved most are gone and her guardians that are supposed to protect her are actually abusing her, harming her, you know, physically and emotionally. And, you know, it's, it's, she's, she's being bullied and it's about standing up to those bullies and finding the power in yourself. And in her way of doing it, she takes it upon herself to, you know, follow these steps that she was told or taught by her, her late mother and grand grandparents. And it's something that that's something that's always resonated more with her than the religion that her father is trying to, you know, trying to force her into. Uh, there's, yep. you know, there's a lot of ways you could read into that and you'd probably be correct. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but I'll, I'll stop there. I won't, you know, just spell that out for you. Readers, you yeah. got to work for it. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing I think is it's one of those stories where um, you, you kind of imagine what the future for, for the protagonist is. And so, um, you know, my, my thought is like, maybe we'll see, maybe we'll see her again sometime um, in a different way uh, or something like that. You might. I can't, uh, I can't say for certain that we'll ever see her again the way she is in that story, but I will say, uh, she is referenced in the incident of, you know, events of that story are referenced in a new story of mine. That's going to be in a October screams, a Halloween anthology that comes out, you know, later this fall. Nice. Um, I've got a story in that called the puppeteer, the puppeteer of Salon. And it is firmly rooted in the Southland universe. And there is reference to the events of that, of gods of our fathers. Very cool. So at least a glimpse of another reference to her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think uh, I'll definitely be going back to her at some point in shorter form. But it's just a matter of the right, you know, the right time and right story. Yeah. Um, I'm probably just going to jump around. I'm probably not going to hit stories in any specific order. But one of the ones uh, toward the beginning, Midnight in the Southland. Um, oh, my God. Just to make sure my brain is working properly. That's the um, yeah, Midnight r- the radio host. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Great. I just want to make yeah. sure that... So Midnight in the Southlands, <laughs> okay. uh, basically a, a guy is, you know, part of the story is like a guy reminiscing of, you know, this um, radio show that aired as, you know, in his childhood. And it was, um, it was the conspiracy theory kind of host kind of thing. Like, uh, what's that dude's yeah. name? Art Bell or something like Art that? Art Bell. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like Art Bell, coast to coast AM. Yeah, in the in the in the tradition of, of that kind of thing, and and um, the thing that so I, I have to imagine that this is probably something where tagging that type of a character where it's like an Art Bell thing conjures memories in the people who read it. So I never listened to that, mm-hmm. but uh, in my my weird you know my childhood, my father. Um, lived in Alaska and one and I barely ever saw him. But when I did see him one time, like that was the thing that he was listening to like late at night or whatever. And when I was like trying to fall asleep. And so I've heard it and it, you know, it's just the crazy, like talking about mm-hmm. like black helicopters and things like that. And so that conjured up <laughs> this very specific, like weird going to see my father. I barely know in the middle of like the wilderness of Alaska kind of thing. And so now I'm tagging on that experience to the experience of reading this story, which has like this very specific meaning to the protagonist. And so I have to imagine other readers probably have that same experience as well. Is this, have have you, has anybody talked about, Oh yeah, I remember this dude kind of thing. There's definitely that, that nostalgia is intended. Um, You know, I, I, I first, learned of art bell through the band tool actually back in the <laughs> late nineties, early two thousands, they had a, they had a track on their lateralis album that was basically a recording from a show, you know, one of Art Bell's shows. And, mm. uh, I was never in range of being able to listen to the show live. Uh, but you know, you can track down recordings all over the internet and that's how I came to, you know, immerse myself in the strange world of Art Bell and Coast to Coast AM. And at the time when I wrote that story, my wife and I had just returned from uh, a visit with friends in Kentucky and they had taken us to this ferry, the Valley View Ferry uh, on the Kentucky River. And I owed a story to Kevin Lucia for an anthology and I wanted to write about the fairy, but I was also listening to a lot of art bell, uh, shows, um, you know, from the nineties at the time. And I wanted to find a way to marry the two and, you know, like there was a lot of, you know, I was kind of in a weird place mentally and emotionally and, what what came of that was Midnight in the Southland. It was originally called Night Drive um, until, you know, Gus Guthrie became a thing in the story and his show Midnight in the Southland. And in a way that gave me a voice through which to speak about the greater, you know, southern region the Ohio Valley, you know, Kentucky and Tennessee are, are, it's a very strange place. And I I can't really, (laughs) I wish I could articulate it better than that. Like it it just going back. Like I, I haven't lived in Kentucky uh, for almost, almost 20 years. I lived, I live in Pennsylvania and have for a long time. Um, But more and more, when I return and to visit or, you know, just most recently I had a book tour there. Um, there's just this general oddness in the air and I don't know how else to describe it, but like, it's this, 
maybe it's the feeling of being the other and people recognizing that you're the other. Uh, I mean, but growing up, you know, you'd hear, you know, if you hear somebody call your name, don't answer, you know, call your name at night in the woods, don't answer. Uh, there's stuff like that. It's like, there's stuff very unique to the Appalachian region. Um, you know, silly things like, you know, if you go to this one place and drive around three times, you know, your car is going to stall. That's what I heard about the play, the devil's Creek. You know, devil's Creek's <laughs> a real place, by the way. Um, you know, if you drive around the circle three times in the woods, your car is going to stall and you're going to see shadowy figures in the woods and, you know, stupid shit like that. But the oddness comes from the fact that so many people just accept it as facts and they just accept it as part of living in the South. Like, this is just what you, this is a part of life down South. Like, you have these weird, mysterious things that happen and it's just something that happens. You know, there's no question if there are ghosts. There's no question if there are, you know, demons and devils and creatures in the mountains and the woods. You know, there's always this this innocent acceptance of it. And these things are almost revered in a way or at least respected. So, and I'm not trying to make... I'm not trying to make make it sound like I'm talking down about Southerners because I myself am one. It's just that for all the for all of the diehard Christian roots in that place, there are a lot of elements to the South that are very, very pagan for last lack of a better term you know there are very many unexplainable things that they can't attribute to god or the devil in a christian sense mm-hmm. and so to loop all of that back around you know when i think that's what i think of when i think of the south i think of all the weird shit that i grew up hearing i think of all <laughs> the weird shit that i've you know experienced myself down there and so I wanted to try to encapsulate that in a story where I had someone who's kind of like an observing figure adding commentary to all the strange things. And that's how Gus Guthrie was born. Uh, Midnight in the Southland radio show was born. And I married it to this, this guy who's kind of having to start over and find himself again. And that nostalgia, the, 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 there's almost like a, a sadness to it. Yeah. And, you know, I remember going on drives when I was in college at night because I needed to get away from my, get out of my head for a while, uh, especially after a bad breakup. And I took those experiences and, tossed it in a pot with everything else and you know voila we have a stew going (laughs) (laughs) and that's how that's where midnight in the southland came from that's uh the um shit i had a thought hang on i'll get i'll get it back you threw me off with the stew going thing um 
I'm assuming that's an Arrested Development reference. You're welcome. Um, oh, that totally <laughs> is. Yeah. Uh, the <laughs> damn it, totally, totally threw me off. Um, you have to leave this in, by the way. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. Oh, if anytime anybody references Arrested Development, it stays in. Um, so the a couple of thoughts I had were um, when you were talking about the way the way uh, you know people in the in the area are and like the seeming contradiction between like being very religious and then also very kind of pagan from like my personal experience and knowledge it it seems like that is in a non-contradictory way where like they're almost like their belief doors are kicked so wide open that like it all makes sense to just kind of like be open to you know of course you know the like the random superstition or of course, like you do this to prevent this from happening. And that doesn't conflict with my religion, which is very scripted and, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and structured. Right. Sorry. But, what you cut out. Oh, sorry. I know I said that very vaguely, but like um, it, it's what you said is in a way where um, they don't see a contradiction between being very devoutly religious and then also being open to their right. superstitions and their stuff like that. And- I think it's in a way it's kind of like how, you know, in, in history, you know, when, especially when the, you know, Romans became a, you know, Catholic formed the Catholic church and everything. Like you had this appropriation of all these pagan ideals and, you know, followings and superstitions and everything. And they found a way to incorporate it into their belief structure and that's how we have Easter, you know, <laughs> that's, you know, that's why we, you know, we married a, the, you know, symbolism of fertility to the resurrection of Christ, which is still bizarre to me. Um, <laughs> you know, that's, I look at it a lot in the same ways, like these things were there before people came to the area, or at least, you know white Anglo-Saxon people came to the area. Right. You know, the indigenous folks, you know, the native folks were already, they already knew, you know, and the Anglo-Saxon folks decided, okay, how can we, you know, how can we worship here and still respect these boundaries in a way? Like, I'd like to think that's the case, but Anyway, I'm waffling. Um, you know, that, I, that's why, to a greater extent, I look at the South as this this weird place because of that and how, you know, you talk about Mothman in West Virginia and it's just accepted as fact. Yeah, that happened. Right. You know, I, yeah. you know, I saw him the other day. He was you know, flying over the ridge and stuff like that. It, it's just an accepted fact. People don't question it. They don't. And I, and I, and I respect that, you know, I don't, I'm not saying that to be derogatory to folks who live down South, not at all. I respect it. So that just knocked loose a thought in my head. And I know we're kind of going off on a tangent here, but I saw this and, and, you know, this could be apocryphal, I don't know, but it was something that, um, it made me think I saw someone probably on like 
you know, social media or whatever is saying something about how like the region of the Appalachians you could trace back to being um, part of Pangea, part of like it goes back very far. So like geographically, it yeah. is a place that has a very undisturbed history far, far back in the history of the planet in a way where um, there hasn't been catastrophes that have changed the geography. It's always kind of been there. So it's got kind of, it's just kind of always been around. So I wonder like if there's like an extra like mythos or creepiness or, or depth to people's thoughts about it. It has something to do with the fact that like, it's been like that for fucking ever. Yeah. I mean, that's, you kind of hit upon something there that I, that I'm, slowly getting to in my fiction like that the fact that you know this whole region is older than we give it credit for or give you know it's older than we respect really like this is you know that area's got the largest cave network in this in the in the world it's got the oldest mountain range in the world um Mm -hmm. you know there there are there's a distinct lack of certain types of fossils and I forget the names of them. There's a lack of fossils in those mountains because those mountains predate the existence of those creatures. <laughs> right, right. Which is and crazy. Like so which is, you know, amazing and creepy all at the same time. And, you know, that as a backdrop for the supernatural and all the weird shit that happens, like you couldn't ask for anything better you know the yeah so that's something i'm slowly building to in my work is you know talking about that and kind of linking it all to that spoilers um (laughs) man but that that all is going to figure into the greater the greater picture that i'm painting here could be a couple of years could be decades i don't know but i'll get there (laughs) the body of work is pointing in that direction. Um, Yes. Well, then that makes me want to talk about cosmic horror because like, as we talked about uh, when we were talking about the different kind of sections of the book, there's plenty of elements of cosmic horror um, in, in the book. And um, so, but not in everything, obviously. So like, I would say, one there's like a one-off kind of really quick one which i think is fantastic which is solve for x um where it's just um this really quick story where i love the presentation of it because it's like it's someone who's a babysitter a kid shows up at the door mm-hmm. um something seems wrong and it's her just fighting against her instincts to not do the thing um and then you know it goes on from there but um, it was a great little, just like morsel of a story that um, kind of just lives on its own and, and was really cool. Uh, it gave me vibes of the Stephen Graham Jones, the babysitter lives uh, audiobook that came out like uh, a little over a year ago. I don't know if you've had a chance to check it out, but uh, very, I spooky, haven't actually. Yeah. Very spooky babysitter situation. Um, and maybe it's just because I've, uh, you know, I listened to it recently that it was like top of mind, but um, there's something about 
a being a babysitter where there's like weird vulnerabilities and danger that I think don't exist in like everyday life or something, but it's a good setting for, mm-hmm. for a scary, scary story. Uh, it's kind of funny. You mentioned Steven because he actually has a story with the same title. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Oh yeah. I already <laughs> put the collection together. Um, I don't think it's about, um, a babysitter though which is which is good uh, but um like that story began as something for middle grade children oh and it didn't get accepted into the anthology that i'd written it for so i basically went back and approached it as a story for adults and you know kind of played up on those fears of overstepping or making the wrong assumption or, and also uh, black eyed children are creepy as hell. I don't know if you're familiar with that phenomenon. That came Uh, up with someone else I was talking to once and I don't remember who, but yeah, please talk about that. Yeah. Like black eyed children are, are these, these kids that, they're not really understood if they're like a lot of people think they're just like an elemental force and these kids will show up at your door or the, the guy who put out the first, uh, his story and you can, you know, there's speculation as to whether or not it's fiction or if it really happened. But, uh, the guy who first told his story about an encounter with these, you know, weird children happened back in the nineties on an internet forum. And they actually, uh, the guys at, uh, astonishing legends podcast, got him on and interviewed him about his encounter and everything. And in that story, basically he's, he's going to pay his internet bill and it's next to a theater. The, the internet place is next to a theater. He puts it through their nightly Dropbox. It's like 10 o'clock at night. To give you an idea of how long ago this was, Mortal Kombat was showing <laughs> at the theater. And he says that while he's in his car, he's sitting in his car, and he's writing the check, these two like preteen boys walked up to his car asking for money so they could go see the movie. But, and they keep asking him, will you roll the window down? Will you roll the window down? And something seems off, but he, at the same time, he feels compelled to do what they're asking. But then as he starts thinking about it, it's like, well, the last movie started an hour ago. Mm. So, <laughs> you know, he's telling the story and, and that's ge- the general gist of a black eyed kid encounter BEK as they're referred to online um, you will encounter this strange child on a threshold and they want to, to come inside they want to cross that threshold and nobody really knows what they intend to do so you know, I approached it from like well what happens if you do let them inside you know, what if they don't have black eyes? What if it's, they just don't have eyes. Right. And, you know, things like that. And they also will say things like there was an, uh, and there was one accounting where I don't recall, I think I might've actually written this into the story. Um, 
where this black eyed kid is like has an ice cream cone and asks for some ketchup to put on it because it's like whatever <laughs> they are, they they're trying to pass themselves off as human, but right. they're obviously not. And they're free, they don't realize the context of what they're saying. Uh, so yeah, like that whole, that whole phenomenon just creeps me right the fuck out. <laughs> and I love reading about it. I love, you know, to a greater extent, the creepy pastas from which they originate, but yeah. All right. So, so I, tried, I remember that was my take on the, the black eyed kid story. Nice. I remembered who I was talking to and did you read, um, Max Booth's, um, abnormal statistics collection of short stories that came out recently? I have it. I haven't gotten no. to it yet. Sorry, Max. <laughs> there. Yeah. <laughs> there. Well, it just came out earlier this year. I mean, come on. Um, but there's a, he's got a black eyed kid story in there. And then when, um, I had him on my podcast nice. with, um, we did a crossover with this is horror. It was like the three of us talking and, um, we talked about that phenomenon. That's where I heard about it before. Yeah. Yeah. Real creepy stuff. Um, thank you. But, and, and <laughs> that's, that was my tangent from talking about cosmic horror. So there is a, a good amount of cosmic horror in the, a few, several of the stories in the book. Um, what's your uh, mm-hmm. history with cosmic horror? Is there is this something that you're um, you like reading, or is it something that just fits well into this universe you're creating, or or what is it, or all of the above? Uh, the universe, the universe I'm creating is a cosmic horror universe. Like my goal there was to, like, well, this goes back to the beginnings of Devil's Creek, way back in 2007 when I first had that germ of an idea. Um, I wanted to take, I wanted to create my own, my own mythos that exists alongside Lovecraft, Lovecraft's mythos. Now Lovecraft himself is a very problematic figure. Um, Mm -hmm. but what he created has influenced probably most horror in the 20th century into the 21st. Uh, you know, a lot of Stephen King stuff is influenced by Lovecraft. I mean, his presence is felt everywhere. And so I wanted to kind of create my own mythos adjacent to that. Like all of his stories take place in new England. Mm -hmm. Well, what if you had cosmic entities or cosmic experiences that were in a landlocked region and not just on the ocean? Um, That was my initial thought. And so, you know, I've been reading cosmic horror since I was a teenager. Uh, so it's always kind of been a, a huge influence on me and my work. And you know, now it's, you know, we're living in the best time for cosmic horror fiction, really. I mean, you got Haley Piper, you got Langan, you got Laird Barron, um, Simon Strancis, uh, Jesus, I could go on and on and on. Uh, but my point is that that's all been a huge influence on me and my horror. There's always been some kind of cosmic element to everything I've written. Like there's always this, you know, dread that comes from acknowledging your place in the universe and realizing just how tiny and insignificant that is. Uh, but it's also those moments where 
you know, regular person's going on about their day. And then the co- the great eye of the cosmic universe just kind of looks at them. And <laughs> suddenly they're not the only insignificant speck. They are the focus. And then all sorts of bad shit happen. So I forget where I was going with that. But yeah, the cosmic horror is, uh, it's been a big wide influence on me my whole life, really. Because I can relate so, to that just in terms of understanding your place in the world and, you know, how insignificant it is in the grand scheme of things. And that's, um, so as we started, as you started talking about that, that was going to be my follow-up question. And you, you kind of described it now and, and like a minute ago. Um, but like as, as someone who's not as versed with cosmic horror, I've always just kind of had impressions based on the small amount of stuff I've read that that's kind of what it is, is like our it's, it's contrasting our existence with like kind of something that we can't possibly understand like that kind of a thing. It's that juxtaposition. It's, Um, it's kind of like the, the focus of a human mind like is kind of human mind is self-centered in nature, right? You know, we are the center of our own universe. And then when you come face to face with something that is beyond your comprehension and puts your entire existence in question, uh, you know, to me, that's cosmic horror. It's that feeling. It's that utter feeling of loss and dread and, you know, madness really. Yeah. And almost like a vertigo of like understanding or something. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, yeah, I, I, I can't, I forget who said this and I can't, so I can't attribute it to them. And if anyone listening knows, then please, please correct me. But like cosmic horror, somebody said, you know, to fully really explain and understand cosmic horror, like you need to think about a child or a figure with a magnifying glass focusing the sun on, you know, a bunch of ants on a sidewalk. On cosmic horror, we're the ants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, it's That's, very uh... bare bones understanding of what, you know, cosmic horror is. So I, I think it's an effective analogy though. <laughs> um, so you mentioned some, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to jump away from the cosmic horror thing. You mentioned some people who were influences on you, but outside of Lovecraft. So you mentioned Langan. So the fisherman, right. Wouldn't that be in the realm of cosmic yeah. horror? Yeah. I remember reading yeah, that. Definitely and- cosmic horror that book just fucking kills it, man. Um, what other kind yeah. of contemporary examples do you think are, are really good examples of like contemporary cosmic horror that's happening right now or recently? Uh, Laird Barron. I mean, he's a, you know, he's a household name at this point with cosmic horror. I mean, his shorter fiction, like his collections, definitely lean toward cosmic horror. Like he's more into the crime thing right now, which is cool. Um, his Isaiah Coleridge series is really good, by the way, just as a quick aside. Uh, 
so Laird, Laird's a big influence. John's a big influence. Um, Haley Piper's stuff is amazing. Her, you know, the worm and his Kings and the sequel, even the worm will turn are fantastic cosmic horror. Um, you know, you got the works of D- Douglas Wynn, Jim Chambers, uh, God, I'm drawing a blank on so many people right now. But, <laughs> That's the thing about getting, you know, put on like, spot, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, I mean, no disrespect to anybody I'm forgetting, but you know, a lot of those names have been influences on me and my work. And, but equally, I also try to take whatever, I also look, try to look at what they're doing and then try to do something different so that I'm not like, you know, just entirely following, you know, and trying to mimic what they do. I'm trying to create something original as well. Um, you know, it's, there's a, there's a wide array of cosmic horror folks out there. Um, you know, I wouldn't exactly call Thomas Ligotti entirely cosmic horror, but Ligotti is also a huge influence. Uh, Ligotti and his, uh, his protege, John Paget, big influences there. Uh, Ligotti kind of strays into heavy philosophical, you know, horror. If you could call even call it horror, like existential, uh, I, at times, extremely nihilistic dread. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also kind of walks that line into the, the weird and fantastic. They're very... If you were to like create a Venn diagram of all those different genres or subgenres, there would be a lot, a lot of overlap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I was just thinking too that like yeah. it seems like people I know of that are into stuff like either even just reading or consuming cosmic horror really kind of fall into the creepy pasta stuff like talked about the black eyed kids and stuff like that. Um and I think that <sighs> creepy pasta is so fascinating because obviously it's like a contemporary phenomenon in a lot of ways. Uh but it's just like the back rooms and stuff just seems like it's like a mind bending things aren't the way they should be kind of thing. So it seems like it's almost kind of parallel or similar or, or having similar characteristics maybe to some of the stuff that you'd get out of something like cosmic horror, but I could be talking out of my ass cause I don't know either. Subject no, no, like, I, I think I look at creepypasta, like the natural evolution of our, you know, campfire storytelling. Like yeah. here's a story about something that happened to someone I know or someone I know's cousin. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> kind of like, you know, we, it's like telling stories is in our, is in our blood, you know, you just look at cave paintings, you know, like you go back to our earliest origins and, you know, we've been telling stories. So, like, I, I see Creepypasta as just this, it's the next level of telling telling stories, telling warnings, you know, telling people about this thing that might have been experienced. 
uh, and in that case, you know, I, I, I mean, there's a lot of creepy pasta that's garbage, but then <laughs> from time to time, you get a real gem. You get a real yeah. gem out of it. So there's a couple stories, and we we talked off the record that uh, I think the best way to handle this is not naming them, but there's a couple of stories that have elements to them where um, there is either a conscious or subconscious kind of one person controlling the environment and causing bad or weird things to happen. And um, I I can't think of of other specific non-your story examples of this, but this has always been kind of a type of story that I've been drawn to. There's something about finding out that like something bigger is happening behind the scenes that is, you know, making us like the trauma of a person has caused me to be in this scary situation or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, I don't even know if there's a question there, but I just really like that premise of like um, either it's known all the way throughout that someone is kind of the architect of my, my situation I'm in, or it's a, it's a clever reveal at the end that, Oh, all this time it's been, you know, someone's dream or something. So um, yeah, I don't even know if there's a question there, but those, there's a couple of stories that have that kind of thing to it. And I think it's a really effective um, kind of like premise for a story. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah. And I, I know obviously cause we spoke off the record, but I know the stories that, um, you're referencing one of them was a puzzle of sorts. Like I, I kind of knew where it was going, but I wasn't quite sure how to handle it because the whole thing I wanted to feel like a nightmare. I wanted Mm -hmm. it to, it was heavily inspired by Thomas Ligotti. Um, and I, I just wanted it to have that same nightmarish quality where, you know, is this really happening? Like this is, you know, this all seems bizarre and strange. And is there some greater machination behind it? Um, and what if, what if the, uh, <laughs> the call is coming from inside the house? Sort of. You know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think that's a pretty roundabout way to sum it up, really. Uh, <laughs> the call is coming from inside your head. Uh, oh yeah, there and, you go. You know, the the other story, the other story you mentioned, uh, was also you know heavily influenced by Harlan Ellison. Uh, you know, I have no mouth and I must scream. Uh, just the the approach, the language just how you have this set group of people stuck in a really bad situation and how they try to understand and come to terms with it and how they try to get around it and everything. And sorry readers, I'm sorry if I'm being vague, but I don't want to spoil the story for you. Neither does Rob. So (laughs) that's the best I can do for you. So, but that brings up something in storytelling that I think is, is pretty, um, I've been thinking about lately a lot with horror specifically is that there's certain types of stories where the people need to learn the rules 
in order to try and survive the situation. And then there's a whole lot of play with whether the rules actually are the rules and, you know, like that kind of thing. But like, yeah, you have a story in there yeah. that does that where there's like a, and I, the thing about the learning the rules thing is that means we as readers learn the rules, but then we also know how to expect things to either go or, um, um, uh, our expectations to be subverted or something. So there's something about that learning the rules thing where um, I, I feel like I get hooked into those stories really well because um, now I'm looking for, oh, this person did this. That means this is going to happen. Or I'm looking for where's the turn where the rules aren't really what the rules are or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's it's definitely uh, an element that we're seeing in horror these days. Um, I'm not a horror scholar, unfortunately, so I can't really, <laughs> I wouldn't even know where to begin to try to come up with an answer to why that's happening or why that's an element in horror. Um, other than maybe it's, it's a device that is used to represent how not in control these people are of things uh something to that degree yeah yeah that would make sense um yeah it does seem like it's a more recent phenomenon and i I wonder how much of that has to do with uh and i'm not but we need to like get an actual horror scholar on the phone or something but like wonder how much of it is that there is kind of a meta kind of self-analysis in a lot of horror now where you know, like since scream and stuff, part of a slasher is acknowledging what happens in a slasher, like that type of thing. So now, um, you can't help, but acknowledge the mechanics of the story sometimes when the story is being told. Yeah. Like it, the mechanics of the story have become the story itself. Yeah. Like it, yeah. it's, you know, and, and I, I love scream as much as the next person, but at the same time, you know, it's like, well, that movie is only about the mechanics that work within the context of a movie. You know, yeah. like there, <laughs> there are plenty of slasher stories out there where they don't follow those rules. You know, there, there isn't a final girl or a guy. The slasher wins. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Or yeah, the horror that the slasher has perpetrated on them. It's, you know, nobody really wins because this person may have survived, but they're, you know, just irrevocably damaged and will never be the same again. And mm-hmm. Which is interesting because I feel like now there's almost like evolutions in storytelling with horror because you do see a lot of like horror that is based around dealing with trauma. Like that second new Halloween mm-hmm. movie was all about the town's reaction to the trauma that happened 40 years ago. So like even dealing with trauma is now a part of the horror story. So I think it's almost like the evolution of horror is a cycle of, you know, what horror is or something. I don't know that. I don't know if that made sense, but like I, I <laughs> no, no, it does. Like I, I mean, I wrote a, a novella called Scanlines a few years ago that is entirely a ghost story, but it's also an allegory for depression and mm. the recursive nature of certain traumas. And like, I think 
we can use horror as a vehicle to discuss these bigger, more present and dangerous things. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we can use that as a vehicle uh, to give, you know, to open the discussion. And that's one of the great things about horror is that it can be, you know, horror, the horror is there to get your attention. Once it's got it, you know, once it's got its hooks in you, then, you know, now here's the subtext. Here's what it's really about. You know, it's just like good horror and, you know, good science fiction does the same thing. And I, I, I'm just going to reference, I know I I did this on another episode of of my podcast. I can't remember who I was talking to, but um, uh, because I talk about horror a lot. My girlfriend at one point just said to me, like, every day in a in a mother's life is horror or something like that, or every day in a woman's life is horror. And I was like, you got me there because that's absolutely yeah. true. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I like that horror can absolutely reflect um, the terrible things that people actually have to deal with in real life and stuff and give you a way to reconcile them or think about them or, 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 or that type of thing, too. Um, because my refrigerator repairman is probably going to be here pretty soon, probably going to kind of wind down, but I want to just say, why are mannequins so creepy? I just want to say that. And I want to see what you have to say about that. It's the uncanny Valley principle. Oh yeah. That makes sense. I mean, that's, that's, that's about as scientific as I can get. I mean, I, I'm going to butcher the, the concept, but like the uncanny Valley is, it's like a graph and the closer something gets to look to being human, the more repulsive we find it. And so like you've got in terms of like animation or creating a fig, you know, a representation of a person, you know, take uh, an Android, for example, you know, it looks like an Android. It looks like an Android. And then slowly, you get it the, the closer it starts to resemble human features and habits and the little things that we do like we can recognize that okay it's doing all of these things but it's not a person and yeah. we inherently find that repulsive so a mannequin you know you've got this human like figure but it has no well, preferably it has no like detailed features like eyes or lips or, you know, or anything like that. Like the ones that are very much lifelike that have like, I'm sure you've seen them where like the mouths are like really wide open. Like they're supposed to be yeah. laughing, but they look like they're fucking screaming. <laughs> like, it, uh, like that, like that is creepy because it looks human, but it's not. Yeah. And, you know, that to me, that suggests, well, if that is so ingrained in us as an instinct, then what the hell did we encounter way back in the day? <laughs> you know, that looked human, uh, but yeah. wasn't. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, that's a good point. So that, that's uh, my theory on mannequins. And, you know, that's why I will use them unabashedly in fiction, because they are fucking scary. To, to great effect too. And uh, the reason I brought it up for people who are listening is um, we've all gone to the magic show closes out 
the collection and there is an element of some some things happening with mannequins that shouldn't be happening that just is creepy as hell and when you see a mannequin and you realize it's a mannequin i feel like there's almost like this inherent feeling of like there's danger because if it does something a mannequin can't do i'm fucked or i'm in trouble or something like that so <laughs> i definitely got yeah. that from from that story for sure <laughs> um thank you all right so but uh uh zooming out uh it's a it's a ton of really creepy scary stories and you definitely cover a lot of ground i didn't i didn't go over uh you know some of the other stories like um uh, what's the name of the one? The one that's very directly connected with Devil's Creek. Um, oh, holes in the fabric. Holes in the fabric. Yeah. Um, like I felt. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't even know if I have a, a cogent thought on that, but just um, uh, like I kind of addressed early on in our conversation, I, I feel like there was a lot of I wasn't ready for the story kind of feelings when I was reading those stories. But that one specifically holes in the fabric definitely made me go, why didn't you read Devil's Creek? And when are you going to get around to it? Because it gave me a peek <laughs> into a story that I was like, and then uh, side note on that, I was recently listening to Talking Scareds, one of their um, end of year episodes, and I'm fairly certain that whatever. When did Devil's Creek come out? It's 22. Uh, be, so Devil's 21. Creek was originally published in 2020. 2020, and then it okay. came at the re-release or Cemetery Dance came out in January this year. Okay, yeah, so I can't remember. It was one of their like end-of-year things, and someone brought up Devil's Creek, and I think that's what it was. I heard someone talking about it, and I believe that's the, the context I heard it in. And just, well, I know, just singing like, the praises of I it. I know Neil brought it up with uh, Neil brought it up with his interview with Sadie Hartman. Basically. Oh, that's what it was. Yeah, that's what it was then. That, yeah, that might have um, been it. That's what it was, yeah. And um, like that hooked me. I was like, oh. I'm, I'm reading this other book and I, and why did I never get to this one? But, um, that story for definitely like, was like, Hey buddy, you got to go read this right now because, um, it made me feel like there's a lot going on in that book that, um, it sounded interesting. Thank you. Um, yeah. Calling out like devil's Creek got a ton of praise in that conversation between Neil on talking scared and Sadie, Sadie, who's fantastic by the way. And her, you know, her book is, is a really good kind of guide to, Kind of contemporary horror too. Yeah, um, and it was an honor to find Devil's Creek and its pages. Like that was that was huge for me. So yeah. thank you, Sadie, again. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, overall, I know I kind of rambled about, and we didn't cover all the stories. But I think that um, I just want to say that it's a collection that, even though it's got kind of some disparate elements, um, it does feel very cohesive, and it scared the crap out of me a lot. Um, and it really showcased your talent as an author. So, um, thanks for reaching out to me and, uh, and offering an early look at it. I really appreciate that. Sure. No problem. Thanks for reading it. Thanks for making the time. And, um, just for listeners who are interested in checking it out. Um, so the release date is the end of September, correct? 26th, yeah, uh, 26th of September. Okay. And yeah. if, um, 
there's by the time this airs your pro, your window for your your signed pre-orders is probably not going to be open anymore but um people can pre-order directly through cemetery dance correct yes awesome um and i will make sure i link to that and support cemetery dance because they're fantastic and um better than going through amazon <laughs> um yes thank you and I'm just going to cut in before we, we end it, because I know I kind of did the whole we're ending this thing. Happy Time Yuletide Massacre was such a cool thing. And to kind of set it up for listeners really quick, um, a woman's going back back home around the holidays. And um, as she's headed home, uh, she's thinking about how she's got kind of reputation for like, every time I go back home, I fall in love with someone, blah, blah, blah. And then she stumbles upon just carnage and like a massacre in her hometown and and the reason for that is is just super entertaining so like i feel like that was i don't know i want to say one of the more light-hearted stories <laughs> but with just a ton of carnage and gore <laughs> in it uh, <laughs> but i was really entertained by the idea and that was, was just uh, cute little, like if someone took over hallmark and uh like the hallmark channel and just decided to go completely in the opposite direction i feel like that's what it would be I wrote that story for uh, Gabino Iglesias and his uh, the Hall Dark anthology he curated a couple of years ago, but I sent it in right under the wire for the deadline, and he never got it. Oh, that's <laughs> so, too bad. Oh, so man. I just put it aside and saved it for the collection. So uh, thank you, thank fantastic. you. That's one of my yeah. favorites too. That's that's <laughs> the one I've been reading when I've done live readings. I've been reading from a section of that. Uh, yeah, it tends to go over pretty well with audiences. Yeah, yeah, it's a great story, and, and just kind of, um, yeah, uh, I, I, f- I felt bad that I didn't mention it because it's just such a fun, entertaining, gr- gruesome thing. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, all right, so uh, I just want to say thanks for for joining me and um, and give me an opportunity to read uh, a bunch of awesome stories. And now I feel like I've got homework to do because I got to get back and check out Devil's Creek. I got to work it in at some point between all the other episodes of the podcast I'm doing. But I really appreciate, first of all, meeting you and um, and getting a chance to read your stuff and, and you taking the time to talk to me. Um, Thank you. you I was can, I was going to say thanks for you know thanks for making time for me on your platform. I appreciate it. So we got Cold Black and Infinite, Infinite coming out. Is there anything you're working on at the moment that we can look forward to? Yes. Uh, I'm in the process of rewrites of a new novel called The Sundowner's Dance. Um, I pitched it to my agent as the movie Cocoon meets The Color Out of Space. Uh, and so I've been working on that pretty heavily the last couple, you know, last couple of months really and uh hoping to get that out on submission before the end of the year and once i finish those rewrites i'm jumping back into uh revelation road which is a proper follow-up to devil's creek it's not a sequel per se but it's the next major installment in that mythos of stories awesome well looking forward to, to getting those down the road as well Again, thanks so much for joining me, and um, uh, that's all. I'm just going to cut it right there. All right. We're good. Thanks, man.